Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Yeah, welcome back. We are doing it again. Doing it again. Welcome back to Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name is David. And this week, as in the last 13 weeks, we will be going through Neocolonialism by Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, We won't be doing it for 13 more weeks, though, because we are 70% of the way through this book. So we are rapidly approaching the end of this series. I was going to say, we were burning through it. We are absolutely killing it. probably does help that it's a lot like Lenin's imperialism just focused on Africa. And so it makes a whole hell of a lot of sense, right? Yeah, there's a lot of carryover from the one work to the other, so that that, that makes yeah. it a little bit easier to to interpret and, and not have to dive so deep into some of the concepts because we already have a primer for it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it also is good that we're revisiting it too because then you can see, like we're talking about here, you know, neocolonialism is about you had a colony, you either, I mean, maintaining it through the old methods still counts too, but traditionally they they get some faux independence and you use tools such as debt and basically just owning, sending your corporations in to own their industries as a way to uphold it. And that's important when people are like, you know, neocolonialism uh, of China and Africa and China's like building infrastructure that the African countries themselves run, <laughs> you know? So yeah. it's, it's good that we have a current event to tie it back to quickly all the time. And it's, it's, more good, it's not good that they're saber-rattling against China, and, and we'll get to saber-rattling in a minute, but it's more good that we also, you know, went through Lenin and as kind of a building block. Yeah, but uh, speaking of regular imperialism or mm. neocolonialism in all of its various forms throughout the world, mm. um, David, I have been told that uh, Russia mm. is about to do some imperialism. Um, yeah. And that that is very bad, and that therefore we must uh, uh, send lethal aid Whatever is there aid. the new euphemism just, for guns? I don't know. Just that took that took one second for U.S. media to. You want to talk about how U.S. media greases the wheel for war, right? The U.S. State Department just put out the term "lethal aid," which has "I'm a euphemism for fucking murdering people" just plastered across its face like a giant fucking like I like killing tattoo. And the U.S. media didn't even bat an eye. They went, oh, that's a good term. Yeah, we'll just we'll just repeat that. And then just it spread like a wildfire. They just they just ate it right up, right? I don't care if it's intentional. I don't care if they're paid by somebody to do it. I don't care if they just ideologically agree. I don't care if they just nod their heads and don't fucking care and reprint the terms and then use the plausible deniability of, well, that was their quote, whatever. They just breathlessly took the language that does most of the dirty work for them and just ran with it. Um, yeah. I mean, that U.S. media working as a propaganda arm in a nutshell right there. But let's talk about what's behind that a little bit. What's behind this? Um, yeah. So uh, so let's aid. say let's say I'm a dumb it. I'm, I'm, I'm a dumb dumb uh, or I'm just an average person who has a lot of yeah. other things to be doing. Uh, <laughs> in my case, it's the dumb dumb. But but for sure. most of our listeners, I'm sure it's the latter. Um, what? What what's going on? What's going on with Ukraine? Oh yeah, so fun fun thing, fun 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 country these days. So Ukraine has a long history of of being involved in and combating. So so whether it's forwarding or combating, Ukraine has a long history with fascism, right? 
Um, you know, the, uh, I mean, we're talking like back to like 15th century, you know, Cossack rebellion, Jewish pogroms. Uh, but more importantly, and let's get to recent history of this, where it really starts taking off and, and really gets important to, to things contemporarily. Uh, Ukraine was where the Nazis entered in the uh, uh, Operation Barbarossa, I think is what they called it, where they, they went after, um, you know, eventually Moscow and Stalingrad, but but basically went directly on the Eastern Front after the USSR and leveled everything in its path. And, and one of the facets of the Holocaust uh, was, you know, basically starting with Jewish pogroms in Ukraine and expanding from there. And they found a neat ally in Ukrainian nationalists um, of, you know, the OUN led by Stepan Bandera, Ukrainian nationalists that would largely not only, you know, collaborate with them, but after defeat in the war or later in the war um, would largely flee to Canada. <laughs> so that's why there's so many Ukrainian Nazis in Canada. Um, but anyway, these, uh, you know, Ukrainian Nazis... Um, in the OUN, right, and under Stepan Bandera, they would always have some kind of nationalist following. But Ukraine was subsumed as the Ukrainian SSR and the Soviet Union after being completely leveled by the Nazis and the partisans and Red Army fighting all the way back through Ukraine and reclaiming it. And Ukraine was the second largest uh, territory in the Soviet Union behind the Russian Federation itself. So it was a huge, huge part of the Soviet Union. It was... Uh, a huge part. It was considered their breadbasket, right? And that's also a big part of why uh, Germany advanced there first. You know, it was the, the fertile place for food growth. Um, this is why Ukrainian nationalists, when it did incur a famine, which stretched all the way across to Kazakhstan and the Volga Valley, um, you know, much larger than the 21 famine in 32, 33, Ukrainian nationalists liked to, to play victims, even though, like, the Kulaks did a lot of the, the slaughtering of the uh, livestock and things that, that you know, made that that uh, famine much worse. And even though they no longer had famines after that, when the Soviet Union, uh, the territories within it used to have famines basically every 10 years under the Russian Empire. So, you know, Ukraine had a long history of, of being brought up as, as a major part of the Soviet Union and, of course, being leveled by Nazis and being rebuilt behind it. And so because of that, in honor of the many Soviet victories... Uh, and the partisan victories in World War II, there was Lenin statues all over Ukraine, right? And and after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, Ukraine, of course, you know, went through liberalization. Um, up until 2014, the most recent was the quote-unquote Orange Revolution in 2008. And this was, you know, another one of the color revolutions we talked about, right? Um, where, you know, you're going to appeal to Western sensibilities. You're going to try to topple the government and, and push for something Western-backed. Um, and even the liberalization that happened in the quote-unquote Orange Revolution was not enough for the U.S. And so in 2014, that was the breakout of the Euro Maiden um, protests, okay? So this was the protest that, that put the – it was basically a coup, right, that knocked out a democratically elected leader uh, and put the current uh, Ukrainian uh, government in power, right? And this current Ukrainian government – They've knocked over Lenin statues and replaced them very explicitly with Waffen-SS statues. They've liberalized the economy far more. Um, they've been fighting a civil war with Ukrainian communists, uh, and they've, they've actually you know, pushed Ukrainian communists down into the Donbass region, which was the uh, eastern region, um, kind of a southeastern little, little nestling in Ukraine right against Russia's border. And there's been fighting in the Donbass for 
for years, right? And the fighting against the communists in Donbass, the government has always kind of sent the Azov Battalion out there to do, which is explicit Ukrainian neo-Nazis, right? So, you know, I mean, this is like U.S.-backed explicit neo-Nazis, especially in the Azov Battalion. And throughout all of this, Russia has been trying for years, um, and this is where Russia is really a craw in the U.S.'s side. You know, we talk about anti-communism being important uh, to Western imperialism and the Cold War, and it very much is, right? Communism is is a threat to imperialism because it's an alternative um, economic model that allows company uh, that allows companies that allows countries to not have to be colonized and countries to self determine and push back. And it gives us an idea as workers to rise up and seize the means of production and take the power away from our capitalist overlords and take the power for ourselves, right? Uh, it also could be closely tied with, you know, land back for indigenous people here, black nationalism, um, things that are all threatening to the U.S. government. So ideologically, communism is very, very threatening. But the biggest thing about these other countries, and we notice this where it's not how socialist a country is. It, the U.S. will target any country that gets in its way of imperialism and treat them all the same way. It's that socialism is a threat to imperialism, to neocolonialism, to access to those resources. And when Russia collapsed, um, when the Soviet Union collapsed and, and, and Russia was set back under Yeltsin's policies and Yeltsin essentially handpicked Putin near the end when Yeltsin was not going to be able to, to maintain power, uh, it opened up this this free market economy. And, and Russia is capitalist now, right? Yeah. And you, you always hear about the Russian oligarchs because – the one sector that was going to be really valuable to the U.S., that was important to privatize in the collapse of the Soviet Union, and something you've noticed that they've gone after in all of the IMF loans and all of the um, – I, I forget the name of the, the restructuring the IMF pushes. Um, but, but oh, one of the shit. Big, Sorry. I'm out. Yeah. I, but there, there's a term for like where the IMF makes you restructure your economy and open shit up. I, I forget what it's called. Yeah. Um, we've, we've, we've used it other current events things. Um, but anyway, those, those loans from the IMF, the one thing they push that's really, really big in, in Eastern Europe is, is, you know, natural gas and oil energy, right? Um, just like outside of Afghanistan, which is more about opium poppies and, and, you know, uh, most of, of West Asia has been about oil, right? Um, yeah. And sovereign debt, sovereign debt restructuring, sovereign debt restructuring. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Sovereign debt restructuring. So basically, um, the uh, uh, the U.S. is really big on taking out these resources and especially big on energy. Well, it's never been able to capture the Russian energy market, right? Like a lot of the Eastern Bloc collapsing. That was a boon for the U.S. economy. Remember, Clinton, the economy was so good in the 90s. Well, it was feasting on the African nations that were no longer protected by the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia as it was getting the shit bombed out of it and the entire Eastern Bloc collapsing. But it didn't quite get Russia's energy sector. And so ever since then, you always hear about the Russian oligarchs, the Russian oligarchs. Well, the U.S. is run by oligarchs, especially energy oligarchs. The Russian oligarchs, the Russian capitalists are in the way of those U.S. interests. That's why you hear about these Russian oligarchs. And Germany one of these big NATO nations. You remember Germany, I mean, had East Germany, which uh, denazified, and West Germany, which did not denazify, and still has the most U.S. troops of any foreign country because of the U.S. troops that were put in there after World War II, supposedly after the Nazis were defeated, but really to kind of uphold Nazified Western Germany and combat uh, East Germany and the Eastern Bloc. Um, 
but even with that, and Germany very much being part of NATO and, and this free market economy, uh, Germany has has been working on a natural gas pipeline with Russia for a long time. And the, again, you know, your main protest, very likely, other than just, of course, you know, wanting to feast on Ukraine, was probably a big Hail Mary to try to crash that. The U.S. has been trying to crash that project for a long, long time. Well, it looks like that the U.S. has finally, like, given up sabotage in that project, it seemed like. And then all of a sudden, right as that project's getting close to, like, okay, it's definitely going to happen. No one's stopping it now. That pi- And I'm trying to remember what the name of that pipeline is. Something too. Um, I can't remember what it is. But this this pipeline from Russia to Germany and basically this deal for, for Russia to give Germany, you know, energy and, and lower its dependency on U.S. energy. Right. Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2. Thank you. Nord Stream 2. Uh, that's becoming an imminent threat. So just like China's been a, a, a target because, you know, their GDP is rivaling the U.S. economy and they're allowing people to come off sanctions and this Belt and Road Initiative is threatening U.S. dominance and hegemony. U.S. energy hegemony is being threatened by this Nord Stream 2 pipeline because now all of a sudden Europe will have other options to deal with for energy besides relying on the U.S. And Europe being, you know, a series of vassal states of the U.S. is an enormous linchpin in U.S. hegemony. So if Europe no longer is that, that's a huge threat to U.S. hegemony, right? Even it doesn't matter how many hundred military bases there are around the world, that's a threat to U.S. hegemony. And Germany is not, you know, Germany is, is vetoing some NATO moves. Germany is pushing back on this, but, but U.S. is trying to go through NATO like they did with Libya, like they did with Yugoslavia. NATO is always a tool of, of U.S. aggression um, that was supposedly to combat communism, but the Soviet Union's gone and it still exists because it's a crock of shit just as to use for U.S. imperialism and to, to keep countries in line. And Germany's kind of pushing back. They want this pipeline. They don't want to go to war over Ukraine, right? And so the U.S. is trying to agitate Russia into a war with Ukraine. Uh, Russia is not impending invasion on Ukraine. That's stirring up in the U.S. media to justify U.S. troops and, and, and saber-rattling and war games with Russia over Ukraine. And it's all trying to crash this pipeline. And you can really tell it's obvious. Not only is that obviously been the play for Russia for a while and that obviously been a play if you watch U.S. policies against Russia and U.S. tactics against Russia for a while. But you notice there's a bunch of news articles coming out about like U.S. energy companies ready to step in and supply Europe if if this Russian invasion of Ukraine causes these energy deals to fall through. And it's like, oh, yeah, no, that's what they're going for, <laughs> right? Like, if you want to see how close it is to World War Three, just check natural gas stocks, of, especially natural gas stocks that, like, U.S. politicians' spouses are tied to. You know, that's that's <laughs> what we're looking at, right? And, yeah. I mean, so that's the biggest thing, right? I mean, we could look at World War, nuclear war, all, you know, sparked off in Ukraine, or we can look at tension and bullshit and propaganda and nothing, but all of that, right, all of that is riding on the U.S. trying to maintain energy hegemony um, for natural gas. And, I mean, it's the same actors there always are. You know, I mean, it's it's all the big energy companies. And I think the biggest one, I don't think people realize what Koch brothers are, I, other than, like, you know, they do all the right-wing propaganda and stuff. 
Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think they're kind of the biggest one when you're including natural gas. If you're straight including oil, there's, of course, you know, Exxon and and, and all the, the like, all the former standard oil companies. Um, but if you're starting to include natural gas and all, you have those guys, but you really are getting into Koch brothers who are, of course, the biggest thing is their energy tycoons, you know, oil, natural gas, that kind of thing. They also do paper products. Anytime you buy brawny paper towels, that's Koch Brothers. That's that's Heritage Foundation shit. But their their biggest thing is corporate energy. That's why they're so big on climate denialism and energy deregulation and, and shit like that. And so, yeah, I mean, those are those are the actors that are pushing it. I mean, that's why. Again, when we when we saw the Bush presidency, and we're like, okay, that's neocons, right? To separate them somehow mm-hmm. from other. U.S. warmongering politicians. Well, neocons were just people that were like buddies with the Koch brothers rather than just like listening to their lobbyists. Well, now we're back to listening to their lobbyists, but it's the same fucking lobbyists, it's the same fucking policies, and that's what we're seeing. Right. Yep. And so that's that's kind of the biggest thing. Uh, obviously, you know, AFRICOM is, is still a major threat to, to world peace and a major threat of U.S. imperialism, and there was recently, I don't know, all of the details on the recent uh, the military junta and coup uh, in Burkina Faso. Burkina um, Faso. Still kind of, still yeah. kind of investigating that. Um, but, uh, yeah, but the, the big thing I can think really is, I mean, it's hard not to center everything on this tension uh, in Ukraine and, and these warmongering against Russia, which, again, will always blame, like, Russia as the aggression. What, what, why would Russia, aggr- you know... What in 2021 would draw Russia, or 2022 it is now, I guess. What in 2022 would draw Russia to suddenly want to, like, that's worth crashing this entire um, Nord Stream 2 pipeline to invade Ukraine? Like, why now? What would be so important now, right? Versus yeah. the U.S., you can clearly see what it is, you know, right? That the pandemic is is harming the economy. The economy was already in decay. They're they're pushing against China because of, of trade and Belt and Road initiatives, and the Nord Stream 2 is a threat to the most important uh, industry for the U.S. warmongers besides the weapons themselves, and the one thing that they've always been mad that they've never been able to pry away from Russia, even at the end of the Soviet Union, and the reason you always hear about the Russian oligarchs, and that's energy. That you know, so you can tie when and why and see exactly what it is, and and that's exactly what it is, you know. And they're almost printing this is what we're doing and why when they say the U.S. is ready to step in and supply energy to Europe if if this comes out, you know, they're trying to warmonger for this, and it's a matter of how well Germany is going to be able to push back because of you know Germany losing control of Europe would be a major blow to U.S. hegemony. So is the U.S. just gonna? stomp right through and assert itself or is the u.s going to realize it's you know not strong enough to do that and back off and and we don't certainly we hope for the second one because we want peace but we we don't know and and what we do know is the reasons and why this shit's going on yeah thank you as always david for that very good recap of some very important current events Mm -hmm. uh that being said we are going to launch right into the work for this week and we are starting on chapter 13 in our new quest for a chapter a week i I don't know if it's going to work this week because we don't read ahead (laughs) because gosh darn it that would be against the ethos of the show uh but that being said we will be starting on chapter 13 the the modern modern ethos of the show we used to do summaries yes the ethos we took on when i decided that reading ahead was for nerds um (laughs) we are starting on the tin aluminum and nickel giants 
The Tin Empire of Patino of Canada Limited and its associates spreads from South America to the United Kingdom and North America and across Africa into the Pacific and Asia. Capitalized at $10 million, Patino of Canada has issued and paid up 1.9 million shares of $2. Of these, 47.2% are held by Panamanian financing houses within the Patino Group. Compania de Bonos Aquinos y Negresos Industriales Cobanisa Patino's purchase into General Tin Investments Limited in 1962 brought the tycoon into a large share of the United Kingdom, spread in the tin mining and dealing world. General Tin Investments is charged with acquiring and holding shares in mining, finance, and industrial companies. Its principal holdings being in those companies connected with the tin industry. You don't say General Tin is in the tin industry. It's amazing. We are... We are what, breaking what, new ground here, gang. Uh, what did Standard Oil do before it got broken up? <laughs> <laughs> it carries out its financing operations through a wholly owned subsidiary, General Metal Securities London Limited. A Patino resi- presides over both boards where he has eight colleagues, Count G. de Boisbouvre, J. Ortiz Linares, and E.R.E. Carter. Carter is president of Brunswick Mining and Smelting Corporation and of several other companies associated with the Patino Group. Brunswick comes with the Morgan sphere of influence through the interest maintained by St. Joseph Lead Company. We also know that Soga Mines has concerned itself with a substantial investment with the new Brunswick Mines of Brunswick Mining. The spokes that lead out from the Société Générale de Belgique's African hub into the affairs of the most powerful financial monopolies in the world seem ever-increasing. So again, we're tying back to to some of these Oppenheimer holdings that that we've been talking about so much. Also, really love how every time we introduce a new company and how all these guys are in the boards of directors of everything, we seem to be introduced to a new lord, or in this case now, it's a count. We've been at a count in a while. Yeah, so I, you know, the whole thing about liberalism is, oh, it got rid of like you know the aristocracy and feudalism, and it's the same fucking families. Of course, it is. Of course it is. Patino's direct investments in Canada cover substantial holdings in Copper Rand Chibogma Mines, Advocate Mines Limited, Nipissing Mines Co. Limited, and Brunswick Mining. By financial jugglery, consolidation of the principal Canadian companies of the group was achieved in 1960. This was done through an agreement between Copper Rand, Nipissing Mines, Chibogma Mines, Jacolet Mines, Portage Island, Chibogama, Chibogama? Chibogama. Mines Limited, Patino of Canada, and Bankmont & Co., a financial house. Copper is the chief mineral mine, but gold and silver are also produced. The Copper Rand property covers some 10,000 acres held in four concessions. Portage Island is a copper gold property of Copper Rand, and the Jacoulet Mine a copper property. Nipissing enters into the picture as a financial contributor to the development of Portage Island property. It is the holder of a number of mining claims in Quebec and holds diverse share interests. Its operations branch into the USA through a wholly owned subsidiary, Appalachian Sulfides, Inc., with mining rights to ore deposits in the state of Vermont and North Carolina. Nipissing brought into Brunswick by a, bought into Brunswick Mining by acquiring from a Patino subsidiary, Patino Mines and Enterprises Consolidated, Inc., 137,000 shares and 537,000 worth of 5% bonds of Brunswick, giving to Patino 1 million shares of Nipissing. 
Patino's holdings in the Chibogama Group in association with Maritimes Mining Corporation and the Irving Oil Company Limited in a 40% purchase of Brunswick mining shares extend the Patino empire substantially into fields other than tin. American and Belgian mining and financial interests as powerful as Patino's have linked together with Patino of Canada in investigating and developing mineral deposits on an exclusive basis across 750 square miles of land on northeastern coast on the northeastern coast of Newfoundland. Under rights granted to advocate, at the end of the ni- of 1960, proven ore reserves totaled 35 million tons of commercial grade. Advocate is developing asbestos. Hey, it's back. Hey, Under we're a back project to undertaken by Patino of Canada in conjunction with Canadian John's Manville Company Limited, Amet Corporation Inc., and financier Belge de Asbestos Cement SA. The participants have agreed to place the property on an operating basis by furnishing to Advocate a total sum of 17 million Canadian dollars. Canadian John's Manville will contribute 49.62%, Patino 17.3%. Amet and Financeter Belge, 16.54% each. Advocate has been capitalized at $23 million, and the parties to the agreement share in the capital ratio to the amount of their contributions based on denominations of $100. So I can't Can read I, French, oh yeah. but I'm pretty sure that company was just named Financing Asbestos and Cement in French. If I Yeah, no, I no, Financing Belgium, yeah. Yeah. That, that absolutely tracks. Yeah. So... Canadian John's Mansville, which is tied up in the Imperial Commerce Bank, the largest in Canada. That's nice that your largest bank is just called Imperial Commerce. Imperial Commerce. Yeah. Uh, The largest in Canada, upon which it sits a director of John's Mansville, a fully owned subsidiary of the John's Mansville Corporation of the United States. Its main interests are in asbestos, which it processes into fiber and manufactures into building and industrial materials. That's the asbestos we know and love. Uh, it is in control. Yeah. We talked about three different types, right? There was like a blue one, like, (laughs) but this is the asbestos I'm familiar. This is the cancer one. The other ones probably also cause cancer, but it made them sound more like their secret Viagra's. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, It is in control of advocates management and has also a majority interest in management control of Colinga Asbestos Company of California, USA, a joint venture with Kern County Land Company, the parent of John's man, the parent John Mansville of America, manufactures products of asbestos, magnesia, and perlite, having manufacture plants in America, Canada, and elsewhere. Advocate has advanced certain mo- monies to maritime mining, which has close relations with Patino by reason of its associations with the purchase of the St. Joseph Lead Holdings in Brunswick Mining. So it's good. We've got asbestos and lead. That's a good one-two punch. Um, Maritime's share of this purchase was 46% at a cost of $4.8 million. Maritime works copper on claims in New Brunswick, Canada, and properties in Newfoundland owned directly and also indirectly by a fully owned subsidiary, Gull Lake Mines Limited, through which it also owns all the shares of Gull Bridge Mines Limited. It has an arrangement with Falcon Bridge Nickel Binds, giving the latter the right to the maximum one-third participation in any future financing, which Maritime might undertake. Maritime and Patino of Canada O'Hare, a director of W.F. James, who is also on the Falcon Bridge Quebec Metallurgical, is another holding company having wide interests inside and outside Canada. These include a platinum property in South Africa's Transvaal. Now we're tying it back to Africa. I was wondering, we were sticking with Canada for a pretty long time there. 
Um, but now we're back to the Transvaal region in South Africa. A small gold mine in Brazil and nickel and cobalt interests in New Caledonia, where through links with Patino, it is associated with Le Nickel. I wonder what they do. Um, <laughs> unfortunately for Patino, certain assets in Bolivia have had to be relinquished under a nationalization program. Yay! Hooray! Yay! Um, that, that's not connected to the current Bolivian nationalization of things, but still, no. good, good in its own period of time, I guess. Uh, Bolivia was for many more years than its people cared about, drained by foreign interest of its mineral resources, in which tin predominates, but which also includes silver, lead, zinc, antimony, and copper. It also deposits... It, oh, I'm sorry. Its oil deposits were large enough to entice Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company, who entrenched themselves by working a large concession, while the Guggenheim Brothers of America, as well as British, French, and others, gathered in tin and copper over a long period, paying the Indian workers around six pence a day for their labor. Mind now, Bolivia, is, if I'm, is, is, Bolivia is now the their main export. Now, the biggest one is, is lithium, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, lithium, okay. which is, is again back to mineral exports, but they're they're one sure. of the there's there's like three major lithium resources around Bolivia and Peru, and I think one of them's wholly in Bolivia, and one of them's like a third in Bolivia, and then the other one's like in Peru, and one's in Chile. But that that's very very important because that's where most of the the world's lithium comes from, and and that's needed for outside of I think some mines in Africa, uh, and and that's important for you know rechargeable batteries and renewable energy and stuff. Um, and especially with capitalism, always got to grow, always got to build new shit, can never, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle, and make these new types of energy, just lean into the new technology and make more and more and more on demand, needs lithium for now until they get tired of it and realize that there's no green way to keep expanding. Yep. Uh, the properties of the Delaware Incorporated Patino Mines and Enterprises Consolidated were nationalized by the Bolivian government on 31 October 1952, right on Halloween. Uh, and invested <laughs> in a state-owned property, the Corporation de Minera de Bolivia Camabal. These Patino properties consisted of mining and placer claims, water rights, mill sites, reduction, or yeah, reduction, concentrating, and hydroelectric plants, as well as a railway connecting the mines with a point on the main line of Antofagasta Bolivian Railroad Company Limited. Patino Mines formed another Delaware subsidiary in 1959, Patino Enterprises, Inc. As one of the largest entrepreneurs in the tin industry, A. Patino has a seat on the main consolidated organizations looking after the interests of those engaged in this field, usually in the company of the Count of Bucevary and J. Ortiz Linares. All three of them are to be found on the board of British Tin Investment Corporation Limited, a United Kingdom company formed in 1932 to take over British American Tin Corporated Limited. Together with its wholly owned subsidiaries, Tin Industrial Finance and Underwriting Limited, and BTIC Overseas Limited, British Tin holds large blocks of shares in the Malayan tin mining industry, as well as investments in companies producing other metals and minerals. So we're back to count boosts of Rory or whatever the hell his name is and, and, and the Rich Snoots just basically sitting on a board where they get to make decisions as they carve this up between their companies. Mm-hmm. General Tin Investments has a 55% interest in Eastern Smelting Company Limited, owning smelting works at Penang, Malaya. 
a wholly owned subsidiary of Consolidated Tin, Williams Harvey Company Limited, holds 75% of the issued share capital of McCary Smelting Company Limited, incorporated in Nigeria in 1961. McCary has built a tin smelter on the Joss Plateau, northern Nigeria, which began production in December 1961. Vivian, Younger, and Bond Limited, the sole selling agents of Consolidated Tin, are well established in Nigeria. London Tin Corporation Limited board does not include any of the Patino directors, but the relationship with the Patino interests are obviously established when we note its board C. Waite, Chairman and Managing Director of Consolidated Tin Smelters, and its subsidiary Williams Harvey and & Company, and a Director of British Tin Investment Corporation and General Tin Investments. Mr. Waste also sits on the board of Consolidated Tin Subsidiaries. The Penpole Tin Smelting Company Limited, Eastern Smelting Company, William Symington & Sons Limited, Rubber Merchants, and that of distributing agents Vivian Younger and Bond. It's always nice, too. Like, we're just introduced to another, you know, dominant imperial family, like every chapter. So this chapter mm-hmm. is Patino, and there's no escaping from them. As director of Southern Kinta Consolidated Limited, Southern Malayan Tin Dredging Limited, Commenting Tin Dredging Limited, Malayan Tin Dredging Limited, Mr. Waite obviously represents on these boards the interests, including those of Patino, of Consolidated Tin. A director, moreover, of the Chartered Bank and a member of the London Board of British and Foreign Marine Insurance Co. Limited, he certainly represents the financial interests supporting him. This conclusion is backed by the directorial presence of Francis G. Charlesworth on British Tin and as a chairman of Malayan Tin Dredging and Southern Malayan Tin. Mr. Charlesworth is also a director of certain other tin companies operating in the Malayan area, namely Kramat Puli Limited, Akam Tin, and Air Hitam Tin Dredging Limited. He is, moreover, a member of the board of Lokana Mineral Holdings Limited, which is honored by including a scion of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, he- Something, his Imperial Royal Highness, the Archduke Robert Charles of Austria. You should not have that many titles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing it's his, his Imperial Royal Highness. It's H-I-R-H is the abbreviation. That's the only, that's the, that, yeah, I can't believe that, you even figured that out. That's amazing. Yeah, Good job. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm breaking puzzles over here. Uh, Locana <laughs> is an investment and holding company connected principally with the Canadian mining industry. Mr. Charlesworth has a direct link with the world of tin mining and dealing through his association with British tin and its interest in Malaya. Sitting aside, Mr. Charlesworth on the Locana board are Messrs. N.K. Kindhead Weeks and J.N. Keek. Both also sit on the boards of important South African and Rhodesian companies. Mr. Keek is a chairman of the Chicago Geica Development Company, a company existing since 1897 and having 17 gold claims in the Sabakwe district of Matabeland, Rhodesia, which was at one time within the jurisdiction of the British South Africa Company. Mr. Keek Keek's other associations are with the London and Rhodesian Mining and Land Company Limited, owing directly 384 gold mining claims, base metal claims, and lands covering 757,000 acres in Rhodesia. Some of the properties are leased on a royalty basis, and ranching operations are also carried on. Subsidiary companies of London and Rhodesian include Mezoe Consolidated Mines, Lawn Roho Exploration Company, and African Investment Trust Limited which took over all the company's investments in 1958, except shares and subsidiaries and trade investments. 
Its associates include Arcturus Mines Limited, Homestake Gold Mining Limited, Coronation Syndicate Limited, and North Charterland Exploration Co. Limited. I don't um, like that there's a gold conglomerate with Coronation in their fucking name. Like, <laughs> and Syndicate as the other name. It just sounds that's evil. Right. It just, oh, it does. It does. Like, we are here to make the ring before you kiss it. Thank you very much. Among further interests acquired by London and Rhodesian in 1961 were 90% of Consolidated Holdings Limited, 100% of Mashaba Gold Mines Limited, which operates in the Empress Gold Mine at Mashaba near Fort Victoria, Rhodesia. 36.66% 36.66% of Canembia Gold Mines and 51% of Associated Overline Pipelines of Rhodesia Limited in exchange for 1.5 million shares in London and Rhodesia and an option on another 2 million. That London and Rhodesian mining comes within the Oppenheimer Group interest. There it is. There can be no mm-hmm. doubt. Despite the separate front that is kept up, G. Abignor, a director of Arcturus Mines, Coronation Syndicate, Homestake, Kenimamba, Kenimamba, Kenyemba. Kenyemba, thank you. And Mazoe is also a member of the boards of Calcon Mines Limited, Northern Rhodesia, Sparwater Gold Mining Limited, and West Sparwater Limited. And is also SF, as is also SF Dench, who is chairman of West Sparwater and of Coronation Syndicate and Kenyab. Kenyemba. That one. Spa- yeah. It looks like Kanye. And I know it's not Kanye, but it looks like Kanye. So I keep getting I keep getting thrown off. Uh, Sparwater Gold is among the interests of Consolidated Goldfields, while Henderson's Transvaal Estates Limited, of which Mr. Dench is a director, comes within the Oppenheimer African Investment Trust group of holding companies, on whose board sits Mr. Keek. It is, in fact, the total owner of African Exploration Co. Limited, which gives secretarial aid to West Sparwater and Coronation Syndicate. Interestingly enough, Henderson's Transvaal Estates have fully has a fully owned subsidiary, Henderson Consolidated Corporation, which itself has a total subsidiary, Mineral Holdings Limited, owning freehold lands in Transvaal and Orange Free State, totally 3,706 acres, and mineral rights over a further 689,000 acres. In addition, it has two mineral concessions in Swaziland, totaling 84,019 acres. Another direct wholly owned subsidiary of Henderson's Transvaal is Mineral Holdings Investments, which holds 720,000 shares in Leslie Gold Mines Limited and 200,000 in Bracken Mines Limited, both of them belonging to the Union Corporation Group of the Oppenheimer Empire. Both mines enjoy a loan of £1 million each from National Finance Corporation of South Africa, in which Anglo-American Corporation and a number of other groups and institutions associated with it have substantial interests. J.N. Keek also occupied the managing director's position on Rhodesian Railway Trust Co. Limited and two other Oppenheimer financial concerns. Willoughby's Consolidated Co. Limited and Willoughby's Investments, Ewill Limited. Mr. Keek's Associates, Director N.K. Kindhead Weeks, is a director of such important Oppenheimer enterprises as Wanky Colliery, linked with Tanganyika Concessions and Union Munray, Chimbuala Mines, Chisangwa Mines, and Chambishi Mines, and also Charterland Exploration Limited, all of them in Rhodesia. Charterland Exploration has been granted exclusive prospecting rights by British South Africa Company over areas totaling some 118,000 square miles in Zambia. Holy cow, they are all <laughs> still connected to Oppenheimer. It's just yeah. insanity. It is, it's all one. This is why we call it Monopoly. Right, it's one. It, even when there's five, it's really one fucking glamour because they're connected. And the trick is, is, it's not five. It's 
dozens. We might be up to like a hundred different companies at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they all come from like three trees, which are all interconnected. We're about to get another yeah. chart, by the way. Uh, the Patino oh, Network is shown it. in chart eight. You will not be seeing chart eight. Of the organizations dominating the aluminum industry, we note first the Aluminum Company of America, Alcoa, and the Aluminum Empire of Mellon. This company mines bauxite in Arkansas and has subsidiaries digging and bringing out ore from far-flung places to feed the smelting and processing works in the United States. These are sited mainly in the southern states, though there are works at Messina, New York, Casting and fabricating plants are operating in 12 of the American states, while wholly owned subsidiaries are exploring for raw materials in Europe, Central and South America, the Caribbean, Australia, and Africa. So basically, all over the world. Uh, then you get all a chart of Patino interests and its Imperial Commerce Bank to John's Mansville. It's a lot. Every, it's a lot. We're not going to rate it. It's a lot. Yep. Everyone's a subsidiary of that and then tied through uh, Petito and Soge Mines. Uh, Suriname Aluminum Company is the principal ore-producing subsidiary. It mines bauxite in the Dutch-held territory of Suriname, part of Guinea. Is that supposed to be Guinea? Uh, Guiana. I don't know. Oh, part of Guiana. Okay, I'm looking at the wrong word. Uh, which stretches over the northeastern corner of the South American continent. So it is Guiana. I've never seen it with an I instead of a Y. Yeah, that's that's new. Okay. Um Lying north of the Amazon and south of the Orinoco, uh, under an agreement of the Suriname government, Suriname Aluminum has 75-year bauxite mining concession. It is building power facilities and will construct a 60,000-ton aluminum smelter. The eventual construction of a bauxite refinery utilizing local ores is envisaged according to the company's publicity material. According to, or I'm sorry, another full subsidiary is mining bauxite in the Dominican Republic, and in May 1960, mining rights were acquired over 30,000 acres of Jamaica. Chart 9 shows the extent of Alcoa's foreign interests. We're not going to read that chart either, but needless to say, too much fucking imperialism. Yep. Um, because of the antitrust laws, there is legally no direct connection between Alcoa and Aluminum Limited, but they are both owned by the same Mellon Davis-dominated group of United States shareholders, <laughs> skirting around the fucking antitrust. Yeah. Uh, the two brothers, Arthur V. Davis of Alcoa and Edward K. Davis of Aluminum Limited, were for many years president of the respective companies. When the latter died in 1947, he was succeeded by his son, Nathaniel V. Davis. The size of the Davis block of shares in the Mellon Aluminum Companies is about a third of that of Mellon's. In 1957, Fortune, the American journal read by all who would be well informed of matters of big business. <laughs> that seems a little backhanded. It's not. It's not quite the Economist, the the Journal of British Millionaires. That but speaks it, for British Millionaires. Little, yeah, yeah. It, it's a little backhanded, though. Uh, listed Arthur V. Davis as one of seven persons with fortunes between four hundred million dollars and seven hundred million dollars. Of the other six, four were Mellons. Aluminum Jesus. Limited Davis is a director of Mellon Bank. United Kingdom provides a subsidiary, Alcan Industries Limited, and France contributes a further wholly owned subsidiary in South Africa, De Bauxites at Illuminés de Province, in which Aluminum Limited has invested some hundred million dollars. Its mine produced 300,000 tons in 1960, from which alumina is processed, making itself independent in a sphere of transport, transport Alcan created, Saquonet Shipping Limited, fully financed by itself. 
to own and charter a fleet of ships for carrying the group's bauxite, aluminum, and inya. Now, that is some vertical integration when you have your own fucking fleet of ships for transport. <laughs> what? I don't know what that would look like, looks at Amazon. <laughs> Uh, and we got Alcoa's worldwide interest, and it's split between Aluminum Limited, Alcoa, and Alcan, um, which is is Aluminum Canadian subsidiary. But it's it's the same shit. It's just a list, and they're all connected. Yep. Uh, though Kaiser and Reynolds set up aluminum companies as an attempt at independence from the Mellon Empire, in the case of Kaiser Financial Alliance was formed early. Reynolds also has not found it possible to keep entirely aloof from the Mellon tentacles. Formed in mid-1928, Reynolds Metal Companies created in 1940 its subsidiary, Reynolds Mining Corporation, to work 6,100 acres of bauxite land, which it obtained in Arkansas, and to mine flour spar in Mexico, which is shift per processing at the company's works in America. Abroad, this may be a dumb observation, but I'm a dumb person, so I'm going to make it. Uh, yeah. This, I assume, because it is talking about aluminum, is the it's Reynolds, Reynolds wrap. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's that it. Reynolds. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yes. This is exactly them. Yes. Yeah. Um, abroad, Reynolds owns bauxite mines and exploration tracks in northeast British Guiana, as well as in Haiti and Jamaica. See, when they put British in there, even though there's an I instead of a Y, it's at least easier to, to read. That's what so we're you know about. what you're looking at. Yeah. Uh, the, the dried ores are shipped to plants in Massachusetts, Delaware, Arkansas, and Texas, USA, more than 3 million tons having been mined and shipped during 1961. Other subsidiaries and affiliates operate in Bermuda, Venezuela, Philippines, Mexico, Canada, Australia, Africa, Colombia, and other parts of the world. Reynolds Jamaica Mines Limited in 1957 acquired the right from Jamaican government to mine bauxite for 99 years on all lands, then owned or held by it under operation in return for ore royalties and taxes. These lands amounted to 74,000 acres. Mining leases have been obtained on 5,800 acres. So this is, I mean, neocolonialism in a nutshell, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> there's no, there's no, we're going to build infrastructure to bring up your society. It's we're going to own your land, but we'll, we'll pay you some tax stipends, so at least you won't starve. You know, like literally a company owns your land. Yep. Uh, the United Kingdom end of Reynolds Aluminum activities is operated through British Aluminum Limited. At one time, it looked as though Mellon would take over the British company, but an alliance between Tube Investment Limited and Reynolds secured them 96% control of British Aluminum. TI, taking... 49% of Reynolds and 40 and Reynolds 47%. The Commonwealth, Europe, Asia and Africa are embraced within the company's sphere of activities. Its subsidiaries and affiliates controlling power resources, bauxite properties, processing works and even a grand hotel and a pension trust all of which are listed among Tube Investments interests as the major parent company. British Aluminum, British took, aluminum over took over Reynolds TI Aluminum in mid-1961, owned at the time 51% by TI and 49% by Reynolds. Members of the Reynolds family sit on the British Aluminum board, which accommodates WBC Perry Coast, director of Ghana Bauxite Co. Limited, a wholly owned subsidiary of the company, registered in London in 1933. Other African interests are represented by EFO Gascone, chairman of the Tanganyika Holdings, Kenton Gold Areas, Zambezia Exploring, and Zambezia Investment, all within the Tanganyika concession sphere. 
The objective, quote-unquote, British press is also represented by the presence on a British aluminum's board of Sir Joffrey Crowther, one-time editor of The Economist. There's The Economist. The, There's The Economist. There it is. The objective economist. <laughs> and now it's deputy chairman. Commercial Union Assurance is also among Sir Joffrey's and Lord Plowden's directorships. F-R-I-A-C-I-E International pour la production de l'Illumina Guinea, 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 uh, is one of British aluminum's biggest interests in Africa, in which it holds 10% of the shares. The project is to produce initially 480,000 tons of alumina annually, of which 10% will be available to British aluminum. The Melons were the original party directly involved in developing Guinea, uh, Guinea's bauxite. Now we're on Guinea. See, it's confusing me now. It, it, <laughs> yeah, because we read Guiana earlier and it had the eye. But we are on Guinea, which is Damn the it. Western African nation. We are on Guinea now. Yes. Exactly. Bauxite resources, but unable to force the pressure on the newly independent African state, their people were forced to retire. Having fruitlessly dispersed, according to their own estimates, some $20 million. Other partners in FRIA are Olin Matheson Chemical Corporation at 48%, Pekeni Yugin France, Pechene Yugin France at 26.5%, Aluminum Industrie Akischgelschaft, Switzerland, something German, 10%. Or Swiss, yeah, I guess. Swiss. Yeah, something, something German. Uh, but it's the Swiss, but they speak German. It's all fucked up. Uh, yeah. Verinte Aluminum Werk. AG Germany, 5%. Alan Matheson is within the Rockefeller sphere of influence, represented on the chemical company's board by Lawrence Rockefeller, who acts for the family and its activities outside oil. Control, however, is shared with the Morgans. Thus, the Mellon Group gave way to an overwhelmingly more powerful compact of interest hidden behind the Olin Matheson facade. The second so this entire holder, thing, oh, yeah. any, any, anything we've talked about after Patino has been Mellon, who's incredibly powerful. And behind all that, surprise, surprise, is the Morgans. Yep. The second largest holder of FRIA is a combination of the Pekeni and Yugin companies. Pekeni is an abbreviation of the Compagnie des Los Produce Chemiques et Electrometallurgiques. Among its directors is Paul Gillett, an honorary governor of Société Générale de Belgique, chairman of Union Minerais, and associate of many of the foremost concerns exploiting Africa's resources. Its chairman is Paul de Vitry, a director of the Banque de Paris et des Paribas, this bank of which Henry Lanford is also a director, besides sitting with Paul de Vitry on Pekini, operates in the Congo of South Africa. And South Africa, sorry. In fact, it is ubiquitous in the new ventures going forward in Africa, especially those in the new states bordering the Sahara. Pekini registered in Paris at the opening of the year 1896 is the continuation of a company formed over 100 years ago in 1855, and like uh, the other leading mining and metallurgical companies in France, has links with both the company's leading banking houses. The country's leading banking houses. Holy cow. Its proliferations are manifold, covering the production of bauxite, barites, and lignite. The processing of aluminum and other metals and electrometallurgical products. It's manufacture almost every it manufactures almost everything from plastics through iron alloys, graphite products, up to new metals and nuclear products. It holds part and total provision of affiliated companies in France and other countries in Europe, Africa, and elsewhere. Its mining operations spread from north to south of France and into Africa. Uh, we're gonna go ahead and call it there because my brain is obviously shutting down slowly but surely. Uh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but we're back to France dominated. I mean, we're back to all the French companies. France has dominated Africa for, yeah. I mean, well, still does. I mean, 
you know, again, we just talked about Burkina Faso today. Like, get, and, and oh, ooh, we forgot to cover the Mali protests in Kurdimit. See what Ukraine is fucking us up with? Uh, but anyway, France <laughs> out of Africa. France out of Africa. Uh, always and forever. That being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Uh, there are a number of different ways that you can reach out to us if you would like to. First of which is directly through email, marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Uh, the next way you can reach out would be on Twitter. We are on the Hell site where we uh, read Ligma jokes and, and chuckle to ourselves as old people. Uh, and we do that at Mark's Madness Pod on the Twitter. Uh, DMs are open if you need them. Uh, last but not least, you could join our Discord server. Discord server is linked in our Twitter bio, or you can always email us for the link directly. Uh, Discord is where the day-to-day conversation happens. It's also where Book Club happens. Book Club just finished up Lennon's What is to be Done, uh, and I'm not sure they've picked what they're moving on to next, so if you want to jump in and uh, and get in on the ground floor of, of that fun and exciting adventure, uh, you are always welcome. It is a great place. I am so happy they've been keeping it going. Um, it is it is a really great uh, another source of again just comrades being able to discuss theory which is all this podcast ever sought to uh drive in the work drive out in the world um ooh, it looks like washington bullets by uh vj prashad and ooh, marxism and the national question by joseph stalin are neck and neck for the uh for the next next book so if you want to you want to break that tie get on in there and 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 take a shot at it i hope Um, whatever order that's done and it's done back to back and both get read because that's an outstanding couple of choices yep yep it is it is nothing but bangers in book club ladies and gentlemen nothing but bangers um that being said uh david i think it's time for a disclaimer yeah, so uh, speaking of, of reading and getting theory out there, back a long time ago, Nathan came to me and was like, hey, I want to read Capital. You've read Capital one time before. That makes you a genius. No, uh, but that, that figured, you know, I would be helpful. And that is kind of, you know, anytime you're reading theory or history, you want to read it with somebody else. And you want to discuss it. You want to make sure you're tying it back to your lives. You want to make sure you're understanding the context. You want to make sure you're essentially reviewing it after you read it. Make sure you're actually soaking it in. Um, and so, you know, the bigger the reading group, the more politically educated the reading group, the, the better. And so what we've always hoped, um, since we started just recording that, hoping our reading group would be more than two, and lo and behold, you're here is that you're out there in your reading groups and your political education groups in whatever party you're organizing in or whatever uh community action group you're working with and um you're reading these works along with us um let's say you're not let's say your party um is you know focusing on a work that's shorter or more applicable to a project they're on and you're reading this on your own hopefully we can be that reading group we can give you that input we can give you that context we can make sure you're stopping and soaking in the work and understanding the work uh as best we can and let's say that's not happening let's say you know we're just you're just using this as kind of like this book where we read it word for word it's enhanced ebook or one of the books we summarize whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you because we do what we always want is having this theory out there so that it can guide your actions and when the theory guides your actions and goes into political action whether that's political education or that's aid or that's organizing uh whatever that is that's a phenomenon called praxis and without theory praxis by definition doesn't exist and without praxis the theory is completely useless they go hand in hand they are tied at the hip amen as always that being said this is mark's madness my name is nathan my name's david and we will talk to y'all next week 
Bye. Bye.